Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Deputy Editor, Deputy Editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. And we're joined by special guest Drew Taylor. Yes, I'm here. I'm so excited to be here. I want to be on your show like once a month. Just going to put that out there. Um, something will come up and we should just, uh, I'm just going to come on once a month, whether you have, you want me on or not. You're just going to so. storm the Skype call. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Listen, we have yet to receive the invite for the light, the fuse pod. That's true. Well, I mean, we'll get you on. We'll get you on. <laughs> for those unaware, Drew, uh, co-hosts, um, one of two mission impossible podcasts out there. There's yeah. A bit of controversy surrounding the, between the two but this is the good one that has uh like super long in-depth interviews with like christopher mccrory and brad bird and all kinds of people involved with the movies and you yeah. should definitely listen because yeah. like mission impossible is like the best franchise now yes. it just I, is imagine a great franchise without a toxic fan base and you have mission impossible yeah <laughs> that, that fan base is kind of hard to figure out but i love it it's sort of it's sort of very universal and um that's kind of fun about it um but yeah, yes, I encourage everyone to listen to Light the Fuse. Um, but today we'll be talking about John Carter. And you're like, why are we talking about John Carter? And I'm glad you asked. So John Carter, which is currently available on Netflix, you can watch it right now if you have Netflix, um, is sort of this weird film from 2012 that had a very bizarre production. It was made in an unusual way. It kind of... History kind of remembers it as just this big flop for Disney that came out in March of 2012, and it was kind of just, it didn't connect. People thought it was derivative, even though its source material was the inspiration for the things that people were saying it was derivative of. The marketing campaign was quite poor. Um, there's a lot to unpack, and thankfully, Drew knows all the things. So what we're going to do today is have sort of the secret history of John Carter. We're going to put all the pieces together to tell you about how this bizarre movie came together. And I, again, I, I, if you haven't seen John Carter, or if you haven't seen it in a while, I highly encourage you to watch it. It is, it is a fascinating misfire. I really think it's an interesting film and a strong case for even if a film isn't quote unquote good, it can still be very interesting. And uh, hopefully you'll find this uh, conversation as, as interesting as I'm sure we will. Well, and I think it's it's a good time to do it too, because when they put it on Netflix, did you see that it was trending on Twitter? It was like the fourth or fifth thing trending on Twitter when they put it on Netflix. So I feel like people are like rediscovering it or maybe discovering it for the first time. So I feel like this is a good time to have this this conversation. Well, and anytime I mention it, people are like, "Oh, I actually liked that movie." Like I think it had like a lot of people found it and were like, "Oh, that was that wasn't bad." Like I saw it in a theater and I was like, "I would watch more of those." Um, yeah. but it did not go that way for understanding. <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> no. No, I didn't. I mean, do, do we want to talk about the, the other failed attempts at bringing John Carter? Yeah, I definitely think that we this? should. Yeah. Before we get to Andrew Stanton, who did, you know, say what you will about the film. He got it over the finish line. You know, this is a production that had been in development hell for a long time. So let's let's talk about those other versions that never quite made it to, right. to camera. Well, I mean, the the adaptations of, of John Carter of Mars have been in development on and off since the late 30s. Yeah. Um, and for those who don't know, it's based off the Edgar Rice Burroughs novels, A Princess of Mars. Yes, which was originally published, I guess, it was collected in 1917. So it's been around for a little while. But, you know, the first one was supposed to be, 
which actually kind of ties into what we're going to be talking about today, but that Looney Tunes director, uh, Bob Clampett, was really the first one to try to get it off the ground as a feature-length animated film, and his efforts actually predate Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Um, obviously, that didn't happen, but it, it's kind of interesting what kind of trajectory uh, it would have gone in if, if Princess of Mars was the first animated film ever. That's pretty crazy. Um, and then, you know, Disney had a crack at it in the 80s um, with uh, John McTiernan directing and Tom Cruise attached as um, John Carter, which I've I've repeatedly tried to get John McTiernan to talk about and he never has. So I'll, I will get that story one day. Um, but, you know, that had a script by Ted Elliott and Terry Ruscio, um, who wrote Aladdin and a, a bunch of other things for Disney. Um, Pirates and of the Caribbean movies. Pirates of the Caribbean, yeah. Um, and then I'm sure that the, the three of us really kind of got back into it when during, I don't even know what the, exactly the time period was, but, but when Robert Rodriguez and John Favreau and all these people were trying to attack, to uh, to do it sort of in the early aughts, I want to say, is that when that development period was. I don't really remember exactly, but didn't the the Sky Captain guy was on, on board for something? Yes. Well, yeah. I think it so it, it originated with Robert Rodriguez because it the idea was he was going to do it like he did Sin City because ever like when Sin City came out, everyone was like, oh, this is so revolutionary and you're using all digital stages and like, look what you can do. Um, and I don't know exactly what happened to that one. I know that there was a big DGA dust up when Rodriguez credited uh, Frank Miller as co-director of Sin City. And so he dropped out of the DGA with special guest director, Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> Yeah, for one. Yeah, he, yeah, he got out of that unscathed, but the other two. Really <laughs> yeah. got uh, but so I think there was a thing where Paramount like didn't want to hire a non-DGA director, and so after Rodriguez dropped out, they went to Kerry Conran, uh, who did Sky Captain. And I have no like, it, Drew. Do you know like what is he up to? Like what happened to him? I have is no he, idea what happened. There's to actually him. a really good story, and I think it was in the New Yorker, but I can't be sure. But there was like basically a really good story that would like kind of revisited him sort of, I think like 10 years after sky captain. And it was sort of like depressing. It was super depressing. He was basically like, I missed my chance. Like I inspired what movies are today, but I, I got like all these business cards from like James Cameron and all these luminaries. And like, you know, I think he, he didn't strike while the iron was hot basically. Like he right. kind of, he missed his window. It's super sad. <laughs> Uh, well, I, and I think the Robert Rodriguez one was supposed to use the Frank Frazetta artwork, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Which does not come into play at all in the Disney one, which is sort of interesting because I feel like if anybody knew about John Carter before the movie, it was because of those illustrations. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I'm going to try to sort of. So my big thesis here is that John Carter was supposed to be the first live action Pixar movie, and. He, Andrew Stanton had been talking about this since 2007 when he was spotted in the uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs archives with Jim Morris, who runs Pixar, uh, and Mark Andrews, who wound up being a, a co-writer on this movie. And they got confirmation from Pixar that they were working on a trilogy of movies at this time. So this is 2007. This is before WALL-E even comes out. Um, and then in 2008... Stanton confirms that Pixar is doing it, um, and, and we get we get talk about casting 
and the project being described as Pixar's first live-action movie as late as 2009. Now, at some point in 2009, he's, he's claiming that... He says that he is being loaned to Disney because Pixar doesn't ro- want to release a PG-13 rated movie. So, from 2007 to 2009, it's already gone from being a straight-up Pixar movie to a Disney production because he says that they're worried about the PG-13. What I understand to be the case is that at some point, John Lasseter got involved and was worried about this thing not connecting, and he did not want Pixar the label of Pixar's first flop to be hung around the neck of John Carter. He wanted because it to be hung point, around Cars 2. Cars 2, yes. <laughs> Well, is that really the first Pixar, or are we going to push it all the way to Good Dinosaur about which is the first it's Cars true too. flop? Okay, Cars too. All right, we'll we'll settle on Cars. <laughs> I'm not even I'm not even going down it's that so, road. No. They kill Cars, <laughs> but you know it's a great it's a great spy story. No, it's not really. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, so so you would say think that that would be sort of like the end of the like debate about what this thing is. But then you have Pixar and Disney circulating videos of Pixar artists working on visual effects for John Carter. You have the Edit Bay visit, which included the whole song and dance of you know him showing models of the ship and this and that happening out of the Pixar campus. And that was in, I think that was in late 2000, yeah, it was in the summer of 2011. Wow. Uh, so, you know, the whole, the whole notion of this thing not being Pixar's first animated movie or Pixar's first non-animated movie is kind of a fallacy. The other things that are, were going on at the time too with Pixar was this is the time that, that they were going to mount 1906, the Brad Bird earthquake movie as a live action co-production between Pixar, Walt Disney Studios and Warner Brothers. And and there, there was a time where every soundstage on the Warner Brothers lot was reserved for this movie and it never happened and this was also when they were working on the Cinderbinder project which was Henry Selleck's stop motion outfit that ended up buckling and costing Disney like a hundred million dollars which is about what what John Carter cost them too so you can <laughs> see least. that they were like you know they were trying to like branch out during this time period and it didn't really happen but but my whole thesis is that is that John Carter is still a Pixar live-action movie, both because of who worked on it. I mean, besides Mark Andrews and um, Andrew Stanton, you know, they had a ton of, of designers from Pixar working on this thing. But the other thing is that um, is that the way that the, the movie was made was very much in the model of Pixar. And you guys read the Tad Friend article in the New Yorker, the profile. And he says that great thing about him about saying like, you know, they thought I would only be able to shoot this thing twice where it's like, (laughs) how much of this thing did he go back and redo? Because, you know, we've all been to the the Pixar days where they talk about how iterative the process is and how many versions of it they do and how they're tinkering it with it, you know, right up until the finish line. And that's really seemingly what happened, um, with John Carter, which obviously led to some hiccups. Somebody told me this amazing story about when they were trying to put together that first teaser, which I believe was the one that had the Arcade Fire song in it. Do you guys yeah. remember yep. that? Sung by, sung by Peter Gabriel. Sung by Peter Gabriel, right. And 
he didn't know that he was supposed to shoot some of the like more special effectsy stuff first so that the they could get finished shots back for the trailer. So mm-hmm. all he had were these like dialogue scenes and so that's why that teaser was so rough was that he just didn't he didn't have the material ready yet and I'm sure he reshot it a bunch of times. Um but uh yeah, so that's that's my sort of thesis laid out for you guys and the timeline of it. Um well, and they also went through. He also went through the Pixar Brain Trust as well, which is it, it's not unique to have non-Pixar movies go through that process, which is where they bring the movie down to Pixar, show it to the Brain Trust, and like take really harsh notes. Um, I think that Star Wars movies do the same thing, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think Marvel Tron movies. Legacy. Tron Legacy went down there. The first Muppet movie went. The yeah. 2011 Muppet movie. Um, movies that yeah. are in trouble. Yes, and did you? Guys, I don't know if you guys ever read that great uh, film crit Hulk piece about John Carter, but he talks about how Stanton was using all these things that he tried to do in Finding Nemo that didn't work, and he got rid of, and and it made Finding Nemo a better movie. But he he kind of brought those things back in John Carter. Well, and you can see, yeah, and movie. you can see that in the uh, in the New Yorker piece where they're talking about. One of the things that he wanted to keep for Finding Nemo is he actually wanted to keep a secret of how Marlon's wife died. He wanted yes. to sort of tease that out um, over the course of the film. And then at the climax, it would be really revealed. And it wasn't working. And it wasn't until you just came up front with it and put it in the in the very first scene of the movie that audiences immediately understood where this character was coming from and why he was doing the why he was the way that he was. It was key to everything that came after and in john carter he just goes right back to it and he's like okay well now i'm gonna sh- not gonna show you how john carter's wife died but i'm gonna tease that <laughs> right. out and i gotta keep john the structure of john carter is so goddamn bizarre i can't it's, it's, it's a really movie nuts. with three prologues yes and yet they're all interesting is what i find kind of curious i don't know about you guys but when i was rewatching it i was into every single one of them the- i thought they worked the but only it, thing that, that kind of trips it up is that the, the, the nephew or whatever is reading this whole thing and he's like, you must hurry to my grave. And it's like, <laughs> well, you shouldn't have written this three hour long thing that I've had to read. You know, the best way to get people to do things quickly is to give them a book. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Maybe in 1912 or whenever the hell this thing takes. Or I guess the prologue takes place in like the 20s or something. Um, but... Did you have you guys seen that great piece of concept art with John Carter, sort of looking more more older and more grizzled, and he's got a Confederate baseball cap on? No, it's pretty it's pretty cool, but it's uh, obviously not something that Disney was super <laughs> into. Um, yeah, well, I mean, and I, that and was it, part of the the stuff around the beginning. I remember the teasers was people were like, "Is this a fantasy movie? Is it a sci fi movie? Or is it a western?" Because it begins in the 1800s, and he's like fighting, you know, he's uh, he's fighting for the Union, right? No, yes, he's, he, no, well, he's fighting. For no, the, uh, he is fighting. a no, no, he is a. This is he fought for the Confederacy. The Confederacy yes. lost. He goes to find his fortune, and then the Union, led by Brian Cranston, says, "You're going to fight for us," and he's like. No. And then he tries to run away. They try to get him back. And then they encounter Apaches. And then the Apaches kind of 
start firing and then well it that's goes... why isn't that why brian cranston recruits him to kill indians yeah like, to kill native, yeah. to kill native americans <laughs> well and that's the right. whole like i guess that's supposed to be like john carter's thing in the film is like every like he doesn't want to fight anymore but everyone wants him to fight and like so you know he leaves you know on earth it's the union and then he goes to an entirely different planet but it's the same shit but this time it's yeah. now the tharks that want him to fight and then it's the next time it's you know fight for this fight for this he's like i don't want to fight for anybody and then why not, John Carter? And he's like, I'll tell you at the turn of the second act, and it's my wife is dead. Right. I mean, good, good enough reason, I guess. I mean, we don't really... There isn't a lot of... Uh, I mean, as as great... I, I really like that sequence where he's killing all those it's things. A, and... It's a great sequence. Like, that's the thing. It's visually... It's actually... The way it's cut together... If you take that scene out of the movie, it's actually very powerful. The way his rage translates into his grief and the way it's woven together. Great scene on its own. Not great for the structure of the film. Right. And you're still sort of unclear as to what exactly happened to his... His wife and child are killed somehow. He, somehow. He comes home and the house is burned down. So the house is burned down. they yeah, were I murdered mean, or someone left the stove on. And it's unclear right. what happened. Right. Somebody left a candle on. They were in the bathroom. Or somebody was watching a TV show with a cigarette and fell asleep in the armchair. You know, that old Somehow story. it became Manchester by the Sea. We don't know yeah. how. Yeah. 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 I was going to say, wouldn't it be a bummer if John <laughs> Carter in the middle just stops to become Manchester by the Sea? Yeah. No, I mean, they got it over with. He was killing some... Some let me look up the name of these creatures because that's the that's the other thing about this movie is that everything looks there's so a little much too similar. T- well, not only not only that, but there's Tharks so much. Tharks Why would you say the same? Well, a- I mean, he, the things he's killing though are the warhoons. They're from the they're <laughs> like the the neighboring tribe. You could uh, here's the thing. You said you had to look it up. You could have made it up on the spot, I and I'd believe I you. I wouldn't yeah. know the answer. I'm going to call it, you on it. So Mark Andrews says they are large. They're um, and Andrew Stanton says that they are. There are different levels of savagery to the to the native Barsoomians, and and the Warhoons are the most savage. I don't know where how you were supposed to get any of this information from the movie, but you know I think that that's. I mean, and looking at it as if we're going to look at it as a Pixar movie, what's so funny is how how a Pixar movie would never let any of this stuff go through just by way of, of overcomplicating the story. Those movies are so simple. And so like, okay, what's the heart of this thing? And this has just so much extraneous stuff that would never have, have gotten into any actual Pixar movie. Um, it feels like one of those Pixar movies where you would get the story after the movie comes out. They'd be like, oh, yeah, we had this whole thing where like you found out that his wife died and it was like in the middle of the movie and like they would be explain like all the stuff they actually cut out of the movie because in animation you could do that, but yeah. in live action you can't. Well, and you know, with John Carter, John Carter is a tough problem to solve because it's the kind of film that throws not just a lot at the audience, it throws it at them in a different language. So, you know, when we watch Star Wars, the Empire is called the Empire, and that's it. But on in John Carter, it's like he is a Jeddak of Barsoom. And like, you're like, what are these words? You're saying all these words and I don't know what they mean. And you so that's why you have to have like a prologue where Tars Tarkas says, you know, this is what is happening. And then we have to go back to Earth and like so someone can say this is what is happening to John Carter. And then about a half hour into the film, those two plot lines eventually converge. 
but it's a lot to take in. And that's before you even like, there's a civil war going on with the red men. And like, also there are manipulators led by Mark strong, who also wants to turn the tide of history, but you don't know what Mark strong's plan is until well, almost like two hours into the movie. It's great. Well, not two hours, but a while it takes a while to know what Mark strong is up to. in John Carter. Uh, yeah, especially cause he wants to be like, not, he doesn't want to, um, you know, influence thing, but he's giving, he's giving all this stuff to the bad guys and helping them along. The other really confusing thing that I noticed this last time I watched it was the amount of tattoos that are in this movie and like branding. And the fact that De- uh, Deja, who is the, pr- the, the actual princess of Mars has all this kind of like red tattooing on. But then when he's under, when uh, Mark Strong is controlling John Carter, John Carter has the same tattoos then, but they kind of magically go away when when John yeah, like Carter the, breaks like, the spell. Yeah, like the 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 tattoos. It looks like they're just ornate, like they just like they're warrior tribal tattoos. But then later on, they're used as like to sort of keep him shackled. So yeah. like the, you couldn't choose a different color for your magic shackle tattoo. Is I guess well, the question. Can we just can we just talk about the spaceships? For a yes, let's talk about <laughs> spaceships. They look exactly the same. I mean, it must have taken me six viewings of this thing to figure out who was who in that opening fight. They're in a sandstorm, and they're both the same, the exact yeah, same. Yeah, I don't know station. who the good guy is and the bad guy is even in that opening fight. Like, no. You know, I mean, again, credit to Star Wars. In that, you, without even telling you a single thing, you can tell that the little tiny ship are your good guys and the big hulking ship are your bad guys. That's right. pretty easy. But when all the, I don't know, they're just like a bunch of little things along the way that like, I think John Carter has big structural problems, but it also has like, like, as you pointed out, like the production design is kind of a mess. And I would also say the casting is kind of weak. I don't think, I don't think Taylor Kitsch is a bad actor. I think he is completely wrong for John Carter. Yeah. It took me a while to figure out what they were going for, but it seems like they wanted the kind of like world weary smart ass of Kurt Russell in like the eighties. That to me is what he should have been and what they were going for. And it didn't quite click. The other thing that's so shocking, especially in today, I mean, even a few years after this thing has come out is just how white that movie is. Super white. (laughs) You know, it's really shockingly white. Um, Well, and it's, it's hard to connect with John Carter though, because you also don't know what he wants. Like even when you find out, that his wife is dead i still don't know what he wants like he wants gold but like (laughs) why do i why am i rooting for him then yeah somewhat charming and i also don't and i i want to be clear i like this movie i enjoy watching it i've seen it multiple times because i really like the world building i like aspects of it but it when he decides to stay on mars i still don't know why well he's in love with a princess I guess, <laughs> if you say so. And that's the thing. I mean, yeah, and and to go to your thesis, you know, it's interesting. You know, we, you know, your thesis is like this is a Pixar film, but it and I think it is Pixar in that it had a lot of Pixar people involved. But you know, it doesn't. I guess the question is, is like, what are the the Pixar trademarks? And I guess mm-hmm. at some point, like, you could say a Pixar trademark is it's a buddy film and. Guess what? At some point, John Carter team and Deja Thoris are being buddies going on a journey together. So, <laughs> yes, Hallmarks and Pixar movies. It's a buddy movie. There's a chase towards the end, which there is in this as well. Um, and yeah, let's see. What are the other? I mean, having a score by Michael Giacchino is obviously a huge, 
you know, signifier. And what a great score it is. It is a great score. I mean, the Fantastic. fact that he can make us a, uh, a theme for John Carter, it's so good. It changes a little bit when you get the John Carter of Mars title at the end. I mean, just it's just so good. But yeah, I mean, the fact that I think that the Willem Dafoe character is probably one of the strongest characters in the movie. Yeah. And he's and he is a completely animated character. Although I had forgotten that he kills off the like young egg hatching creatures at the beginning, which is not that's not oh, a yeah. great look. And he like beats up his his daughter or whatever. Well, and also the thing about the the Tharks is that they're kind of, like so you have these I get that you're trying to adapt a novel that was in that was written in 1917 uh or published in 1917, but at the same time, it's like, are the Tharks supposed to be stand-ins for Native Americans? Like, is that who they're supposed to be? Or is it not? Like, it's so weird. Like, because, again, you're drawing from these Western tropes. But if you draw from them, then you kind of have to think through, like, well, what does it mean? And so are the Tharks, like, the savages? Or are they just, like, the natives? Or, like, who who are they? And that's the thing. This film is juggling so much that it's really hard to get a handle on anything that's to be invested in. Yeah, well, you saw that the blue blue was the helium, the good guys, flag on the spaceships. This is the only difference between the two spaceships. And red is the, um, what are the, Zodangans? Is that who the other guys are? That that was their spaceship. So I guess, yeah, it's supposed to be the Union and the, and, and the Confederacy, and then the Tharks are the uh, Native Americans, but I'm not quite sure who the therns are supposed to be. And also there's all this like industrial revolution. Yeah. It's like, are the therns like the robber barons who like, right. Manipulate? right. Cause that, pla- that like uh, platform that like eats up the dirt or whatever is in there too. I mean, it's, it's a lot of competing um, signals. Um, but what's interesting too, artistically is that they, you know, we kind of alluded to this before, but they didn't use any of the Frank Frazetta stuff, which, yeah, Seems like maybe not the best choice in retrospect, because um, the aliens look kind of wimpy. I feel like, uh, especially compared to him, and they're and just like so in awe of him being able to like jump and you know do all that stuff. It's like they could have been a lot cooler. Well, and especially uh, for all the work that they went into it, I did the, I did the said visit for John Carter, and the I got to like talk to Willem Dafoe and uh, Thomas Hayden Church while they were like on stilts. Like they had to put those actors on stilts so they would be high enough to be for reference and to, you know, to give them the movements that they needed. And it was just, and at the end of the day, they just kind of look, okay, they're green people with tusks. Okay. I get it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. There, there is not a lot of uh, designy stuff to them. Um, but what was the what was the attitude on set? I mean, where where did they shoot Utah? Or Utah, yeah. We 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 I, I the, when I was on set, yeah, they shot it in Utah. So I went to Utah, and the 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 mood was pretty jovial. I remember at some point there being a I think there was a sandstorm, and they had to <laughs> shut things down for a little bit. Um, I could be wrong. It was this was back in 2011, um, right? But uh, you know, everyone was in a good mood and everyone seemed to be pretty positive about what they were doing. And the, honestly, the only record scratch moment was when another journalist, uh, from a website that will remain nameless said, Oh, we've got two Spider-Man villains right here. And just like, everyone's just like, uh, oh, <laughs> I know, right. right. Wow. What an observation to make at this point in time. Yeah. Wow. 
okay. okay. Yeah, yeah I mean, exactly. It was, it was probably is? jovial because that was probably the first time they were shooting things um, and not the second or third right, time. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, no, everyone seemed to be, like, in a good mood and, like, just sort of, you know, everyone seemed pretty confident about what they were doing and what they were working on. And, again, it's sort of, you know, going to the Pixar nature of it all. I mean, that sort of, to me, is the most fascinating aspect of this production is that Andrew Stanton tried to make a live-action movie as if it were an animated film. And we all, like, everyone learned the hard lesson of why that is not done. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that's why, I think, the Matt, to your point earlier of, um, like, maybe this isn't a a Pixar film. I think think it's half a, I think it's a Pixar production that was released halfway through its development period. Because if this were an animated film, they would have fixed all of these problems by the time it came out. They would have deleted confusing subplots. They would have streamlined because they would have had the time to do it. But after doing two rounds of reshoots, he understand was out of money. Right, exactly. Like, the live action film could never the funding for it could never support what an animated film does just by putting together storyboards. Right. And the scheduling of getting everybody back. I mean, that must have been a nightmare and people lose weight and people cut their hair and you know, it's yeah. like yeah, it it really is an interesting sort of case study. And the other thing that was that he thought he was looking down the barrel of a gun of two more movies. Yeah. So he thought he was going to get this out of the way and come back fairly quickly. Um, and that didn't happen, but at least he shared the logos for the other movies on Twitter not that long ago, which was kind of interesting. That was you... interesting because, like, nowadays, I kind of roll my eyes at the directors who was like, oh, you know, we'll see. We'll take it one one movie at a time or, like, TV shows, you know, like, oh, we'll see if we get another season. Like, the Duffer Brothers are being super cagey about season four of Stranger Things. Like, they don't already have a writer's room open for that Um but you look back at Andrew Stanton and you read those interviews where he was like, yeah, we got the script for the next one ready to go. And I'm just waiting for that green light. And, you know, I was hoping that they would go ahead and tell me that we could make the sequel after the test screening, but they haven't told me yet. And it, it, it really is a case of don't count your eggs before they hatch. Yeah. And, and I remember I talked to I think I talked to Mark Andrews for Brave. And first of all, I brought up John Carter and then got a very stern talking to from a Disney publicist who said, <laughs> you should not have even we, brought that up. We do not talk about uh, JC in this uh, house. And then the other – yeah, I was like, well, what do you want me to do? He's, he's been a part of two of the biggest – you know, he was a part of he, – he ended up directing Brave after they fired Brenda Chapman. And he was a huge part of John Carter. Yeah, um, he directed and he was, it, right? Yeah, yeah, he did, he did direct Second Unit. And he, he was like, yeah, you know, we're just waiting to get – See, the other really interesting character involved in this whole thing is Michael Chabon. Yeah. Yes. Um, who supposedly he told me, and that, that was around the time of Brave, that he was coming back into to do a like they were going to work together the same way they did for this one and, and do another script. But he said that he did a lot of the dialogue polishes and Chabon Sh- said that. No, that's this is what oh, Mark Andrews is okay. saying about yeah. Oh. And so I, I would really love to know like what he contributed and what he didn't because, I mean, a lot of this stuff that we're complaining about is better suited for a novel than a movie. You know, there's interlocking prologues and all this other well, stuff. You know, it's funny. In the movie I was thinking a lot about as I watched John Carter on this most recent viewing was Jupiter Ascending, which is like another sort of big, bombastic sci-fi fantasy, except there's no book for that. It looks like, it right. seems like there should be. <laughs> like, oh, did you adapt a 900-page book for this? No, we just made it. <laughs> Thank you, Wachowskis. Yeah. Never quit being you. 
Um, the movie, the movie that I most desperately want an art of book for that does not exist because um, <laughs> no one would even would even put that out. Um, yeah, Channing Tatum. Yes, I know. We need to see more wolf. Him looking more wolfy. Um, but you know, and the other thing that I think is sort of interesting in retrospect is that Stanton's done all this TV work since. Right, he just directed the yeah. episode of Legion. He directed a couple of episodes of Better Call Saul and, and Stranger Things, and and you think like, man, if he could redo this, would he have just? Would this be like a you know hundred million dollar Disney Plus show? But that's what I was thinking of when I watched it. The most recent, most recently, was like this would absolutely be a TV series, whether it be. You know, now I could see it as being, I mean, I guess with the Disney stuff, but I could see it as being a prestige, like HBO's, like, next Game of Thrones or something like that. Yeah. Well, they've lost the rights again, so it could be an HBO show. But I think that was the other thing that people had a hard time. It was like, you hear the word Jeddah, and you think Jedi, but then you realize, oh, George Lucas probably stole this from Princess of Mars when he was dreaming up Star Wars, and there was sort of a disconnect on the marketing of, of getting across that this came first, this was yeah. the kind of like patient zero for all this other stuff that came after it. And, you know, we've all read interviews with countless filmmakers that have cited John Carter as the inspiration for whatever project they're doing. And it's a shame that they couldn't quite get that messaging out. And, and the other thing about it was that for a, for a company like Disney, they had like zero promotional partners on this thing. Like they took it to Toy Fair. Nobody wanted it. There was not a Happy Meal. There was nothing in the parks. There was barely anything on, uh, you know, the Disney Store website. I have the little Vinylmation figures. Um, I'm very proud to say that I've got kept those. Um, <laughs> no Woola plushes. No Woola plushes. And Woola is great. Like if, if there was a company that could make Woola a thing, it's Disney. But they couldn't yeah. even do that. So... I don't know. I mean, it seems like it was kind of doomed from the beginning. Well, I but... mean, the marketing on it was so inexplicable. I mean, they, they, first off, I get it. Like, you know, you don't want to call it a princess of Mars because you're afraid, oh, boys, the most important demographic, I guess, will not see a movie with a princess in the title. Okay, well, we'll call it John Carter of Mars. Okay, well, that's a good compromise. No, we have to drop the of Mars because then women won't go see it because women don't like sci-fi, I guess. Um, so we'll just call it John Carter. And it's like, right. at, at that point, like, well then what is it? Like that doesn't tell anyone anything. And it was crazy. I remember the, they had, they bought a Super Bowl spot for it. That's, that is pretty expensive. And the Super Bowl spot was just like, you know, clips of the movie inside the title, John Carter. <laughs> and it's just like, Oh, I remember that, that like logo with the J. Yeah. And, and M. yeah, it's just like, and again, no one knows what John Carter is. And right. So you have a marketing campaign that doesn't tell people what the film is. And every time they see a trailer, they still don't know what it is. And like, yeah, of course. And at that point, it's like, if you can't tell people what this movie is even about or why they should care or what genre it is, like, of course it's going to flop. Like, of course. Right. And I get, and I'm not saying like John Carter was a slam dunk, easy sell, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe John Carter of Mars was not the worst title is all. I'm well, saying. just to put things in perspective, 2009 princess and the frog comes out, does not meet financial expectations. The word princess is automatically that's cut, but it stays John Carter of Mars for a little while. It's not until 2011 when Mars Needs Moms opens, 
that oh, and that yeah. is like the one of the biggest bombs in Disney history. And blame Bob we, Zemeckis. Yeah, we could do a whole thing about image movers, digital, and you know, yellow submarine and all that. But but at that point, that's when the Mars got cut, and the the kind of weird you know in between land that Stanton struck with God. Disney was like we're gonna call it John Carter Mars in the closing credits. Well, like, thank goodness Coach Carter was a hit. Otherwise. The movie yeah. just be called John. <laughs> that would have been terrible. You know, what's going to happen now is there's going to be, like, some pedophile they're going to expo- expose, and his name is going to be John Carter, and <laughs> thing is going to be just tainted forever. Well, uh, as an avid ER fan, all I could think of was John Carter from ER. John the Carter Noah of well, that's Noah Wiley, right? Yeah, that's Noah Wiley. And, like, it did, like, Noah Wiley is very everyman-esque, and so it felt like, is this just about, like, an everyman? I went back and rewatched the the teaser trailer and the official trailer before doing this podcast, and the teaser trailer starts out in the 1800s briefly and then rockets to Mars and has that arcade fire cover by Peter Gabriel, because you know kids love Peter Gabriel. Mm-hmm. And then the second, the official trailer is, uh, I think it has, I think it's Led Zeppelin's Cashmere. Oh, uh, yeah. Which ain't Kate. cheap. Led Zeppelin ain't yeah, cheap. Yeah, yeah, jeez. But the tone of both trailers is a self-serious, Braveheart-esque, like, he will save our planet. Where, in reality, the movie, it should have been Indiana Jones. It should have been cocksure, charming, spunky, like, adventurous, which is what the movie is for the large majority of yeah. it. It's it should have, it should have been swashbuckling is what it should yeah. have been. Yeah, and from what I understand, he was incorporating a lot of the second book into this movie. Um, like, I guess the River of Is, that whole sequence is from... And and even the uh, Mark Strong and the Therns were from the second book. They weren't even in the first book. And he crammed... So you're taking a dense novel that is already antiquated. He's cramming even more stuff in. I remember John Favreau said... That like after Stanton's came out and he was like, wow, that was a really different approach. We were going to end it shortly after he got to Mars. So he <laughs> okay, well, that seems a bit too far stuff. in the other direction. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you saw he has a great model of Wula that, that they created. And so there was still going to be stuff on Mars. But he, I guess his whole point was like all that Civil War stuff. There's a wedding. There's, you know, all that stuff would, would not have been there. And so cowboys and aliens. So cowboys, and, yeah. <laughs> I, I will defend the extended cut of that movie, but that is, that is what? for another. There's podcast. an extended cut of that movie. Oh yeah, it's like 20 minutes longer. It's a lot more violent. You should you should look at it. Anyway, uh, that's I? the other thing that you that you you sort of inadvertently brought up is that you have no idea what the plight of Mars is. Like what if he yeah. is supposed to be the savior? Like what is he saving them from? I would also argue that Mars doesn't look weird enough like it should. Like, it's no, not red it like yeah. you think it is. No, I, it, it desperately needed more color correction. It needed to, fe- it needed to feel more foreign. It, it never really stops feeling like, oh, we are in Utah. We're in Utah, yeah. and there are spaceships. We're in Utah, and there's, like, some fuzzy stuff on the ground. And that it, it was like Fraggle Rock or something. It was not, you know, this big epic. But can we all agree that that white ape scene is great? Yes, <laughs> it's fun. It's fun. Well, Adam, Adam, I think we got a hater on the line. Here. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, guys! Hater. I thought we were gonna come on and show our love for John Carter, and everybody's just shitting on it. <laughs> I know. Here's that. Okay, 
Listen, Here's the thing, I though. Can't... Like, we've been talking about it for, like, almost 40 minutes. And, like, that's the thing. It's an interesting film to delve into. There have been movies that are bad where just, like, after 20 minutes, Adam and I are like, yeah, I just want to move on. I just want to move on to something else. <laughs> I think I think you guys are, are so right about this being a Pixar movie that, that left the left the building too soon. Yeah. But that's really what it is. It's a Pixar well, movie that... You're the insider. Give us an example. What's a... Do you know... Like, what's a Pixar movie that you know what the half-finished version of it was? Well, I mean, we can talk about Good Dinosaur a little bit. Um, yes. The newer things I'm sort of, like, not really allowed to talk about. But I can tell you a really cool bit from Toy Story 4, just for your own edification, that I desperately wish was still in the movie and nobody's talked about. So you know that you know Woody's boots say Bonnie, but her name is spread across both souls. So one says B-O and the other one says N-N-I-E. And when he leaves to go with Bo at the end of the movie, he takes his boot and he scrapes his left shoe across the ground. So the only name on the, on the bottom of his boot is Bo, which I think is a great ending that should have been. It's wonderful. Isn't that wonderful? It like just, even just talking about it, I just get, it's just my heart swells, but that, that's, that's no longer in the movie. Yeah. But like Good Dinosaur, had a magical tree at one point. They were all speaking in like um, Pennsylvania Dutch dialect, like accent. <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> a crazy um, kind of like uh, band of marauding bugs. So bugs were the villain. I mean, they were literally bugs. They had no personality. They were just sort of this like swarm of bugs. That that, that was sort of the chief uh, antagonist in that movie. But <laughs> That was the other thing is like Pixar couldn't do something like change directors halfway through or install somebody else. Yeah. And um on John Carter. On John Carter. But they could in an animated movie. I mean, especially cuz Stanton was so vocal about it and was getting stuff like that, you know, insane 5000 word New Yorker profile and all this stuff. It wasn't something that you could just do. Um and well, especially with having the, having the the cloud of Finding Nemo and and Wall-E, he had two Oscars. Yes, and he, and he was embarking on this thing as this big project after Wall-E, which was, you know, A.O. Scott's number one movie of the decade, and you know, all of this stuff. So, yeah, it's really. I mean, the a lot of Pixar movies are really bad for a really long time, and they really take a long time to find their way. I mean, people came up to me at the Toy Story premiere and said, "Man, this this thing was." in rough shape for a long time that, you know, they sometimes it doesn't look like it's going to pull out. And what's interesting about Toy Story 4 is Andrew Stanton is the chief writer of Toy Story 4. So I feel like given enough time, he could have probably worked this stuff out. But, you know, live action is a different, is a different beast. And there was, you know, it's interesting because there, there wasn't, it didn't seem like there was that much commercial pressure on it besides the budget because there was nothing else. There wasn't a theme park ride opening up. There was not, not a, you know, expensive tie-in with Coca-Cola or anything. I mean, there was nothing else that was a part of this thing. It was just the movie. And so all he had to do was kind of get it done and have it be releasable on time. But, I mean, I'm sure you guys remember that the the critic screenings were the week of. There was nothing early. I mean, besides people that went to the junket, which I heard was a great junket. I don't know if either of you went. Um, but there was, uh, you know, it was sort of kept quiet for a long time. But uh, it's interesting, too, to think about Brad Bird, whose, whose Mission Impossible came out, like, four months before this opened. And, like, why 
his work oh. and uh, <laughs> Sands didn't. I mean, I think part of it is that he had Tom Cruise and Robert Ellswood and Paul Hirsch. And... But also, he didn't try to make it like an animated film. He my... did, but you know, what, you know what Paul Hirsch told us, and I don't know if you've listened to this episode, is that he made Paul Hirsch go through the entire movie yeah. every time they were sitting down to edit, frame by frame. <laughs> <laughs> and if you listen to the podcast, Paul Hirsch sounds like he's still sour about it. Yeah, but he said that he's used it a couple of times. So that's what's sort of interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I just don't know. I don't know what the fix would have been except give it 18 more months in development. Yeah. Yeah, I that's the thing. There's no – yeah, there, there's no – you know, sometimes there's a movie that's like, oh, cut off the last 20 minutes and the, film's, and the film will work. But John Carter, all the problems are kind of interlinked, and some I think are intractable. Like I think there's some casting issues that, you know, there's miscasting. I also think, you know, the production design, you know, there's production design issue that doesn't work. So even if you got the story beats sorted out, there's still other problems that you would have to sort along the way. Right. Can we all agree that no one should be allowed to cast James Purefoy and Dominic West in the same movie? Because they look the damn same. <laughs> they look the same. Uh, Stanton loves The Wire, which is, I think, why... Well, that's this happen. whole movie is Stanton was watching peak TV, like Friday Night Lights, Taylor Kitsch, Breaking Bad, Brian Cranston, you mm-hmm. get Dominic West from The Wire. I don't know what James Purefoy was on. But it felt like that, like the leads of the movie just felt like very much like if I were sitting there and I was like, ooh, what do I really like right now? This is who I would pick, which doesn't necessarily mean they're the best. Although player. I think like a lot of, I, I don't know, even to me, like some of the casting is kind of unimaginative. Like, oh, Dominic West is Dominic West is playing a sneering bad guy leader like in 300, which had come out, you know, five years before. Or right. Mark Strong is playing a villainous, you know, shadowy figure as he has played dozens of times it feels like he played it earlier this year in fucking shazam right (laughs) to be fair we don't know at that point how many villain roles he had put under his belt that yes he was that was early (laughs) in his villain career well no but no but like in he was the villain in sherlock holmes i mean you know that's yeah which had come out what three years before so i don't know the cast the casting of that movie in addition to being very white is also very unimaginative yeah well i think that that was one of the places that they you know sit conserved money was on casting and also he thought oh i'm gonna like break all these stars because there's gonna be this is gonna be this big trilogy and um you know it just didn't happen and what's interesting about the star wars connection to all of this is that uh, michael arndt who wrote toy story 3 was at had been at pixar for a long time and he used to do this talk and i've seen video of this talk and it's amazing it's this whole presentation where he talks about how the original Star Wars is like this perfect example of a hero's journey and the story beats that it hits and you're at your lowest point before Han Solo comes back and all of this stuff. And he really breaks it down in this really amazing way. I wish I still knew where the video was, but it's just like, did he, did he listen to this talk ever or did he watch this video ever? Because there's just, there's such an insane lack of clarity to anything and they're, it's just yeah. festooned with all this stuff. Um, so that that's another interesting thing, because Arndt was doing these talks around this time at Pixar, and certainly during the development of John Carter. And I think what's interesting is that like Pixar doesn't get a release date until they're, they're comfortable enough with the movie that they can make it. Like, it's come to a certain point that the story's worked out, you know, Incredibles 2, 
like for a long time involved AI and buildings coming to life. And there was this crazy sequence where Mr. Incredible was attacked by all the things at Edna's house and all this stuff. And they, they didn't get a release date until they had worked all that stuff out. And this was like, they were still waiting to work it out before they got the release date. And then they had to make the movie and put it out. Like the release date came, you know, before any of that stuff was actually done. So, well, that was the old Pixar way too, though. Like, that, it wasn't always the case that they would wait, right? Because like Newt and uh, Newt some was other just, shuffles. Yeah, well, that's why like Toy Story Four was pushed back two different times yes. to get that right. That right. Which, it was announced the reason that Rashida Jones left Parks and Recreation in its second to last season was so she could go and write Toy Story Four. That's how oh, long. Really? was yeah well the story no one's talking about too is that the story was originally described as a love letter to nancy lassiter (laughs) which uh no one has talked about yeah we talked about it on our podcast oh good oh good did you guys like toy story 4 um yeah yeah. i i quite enjoyed it (laughs) yeah i thought it was amazing um yeah i don't i don't think it's a love letter to nancy lassiter but barring that (laughs) no I think Lotso is the most uh, Lassiter-esque character we've got. (laughs) All of those inappropriate hugs. (laughs) Yeah. Is that like a thing? I don't know if that's an actual... I I haven't talked to anyone who said, like, yeah, it's Lassiter, but I was thinking about it because I watched all of them before. It seems like a Sinestro Brad Bird scenario a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So... funny. I think that... uh, I mean, what do you guys, how do you guys feel about Pixar in general these days? Um, I, we, we talked about it on our, on our Toy Story 4 episode. I'm generally optimistic. Um, I think that they needed new creative direction. I think Pete Docter is obviously a talented storyteller. Um, I like the fact that there are no currently no sequels on the schedule. Mm-hmm. And also that the schedule is pretty much in the dark, that they're not announcing what is coming for the next four years, that we yeah. know they're, we know what their 2020 movies are, and that's it. And I'm, I'm totally okay with that. I would much rather, like, don't tell us what the movies are, don't tell us what they're about, just work on them, and you know what, and if you can leave sequels behind for a, little, for a minute, that would be great too. Yeah, I, I think that there's going to be a lot of surprises in the next few movies and I, I hope that we get to see a little bit of that at D23 but I can confirm that there is a female director in development on a, a really cute movie that is I it? hope gets made. <laughs> well I think we know who uh, the female director is. I yeah mean, oh yes we, I think we do know who the female director yeah. is. is. It, well, I think she, it, it is it is and I think that her movie is going to be really cute. Um, What's it about Drew? I can't, I can't say. Tell us Drew. <laughs> I can't say but I can say that I think Onward and Soul are both going to be amazing. Like, those are two of the most exciting filmmakers at Pixar. They're doing original yeah. properties. And, I mean, what's better than that? The only thing I'm worried about is the kind of, like, bottleneck of two Pixar movies in the same year. Because the last time that happened, it was... It was Inside Out and Good Dinosaur. Yeah, Good Dinosaur, yeah. And then I think it was... Was it Cars 3 and something else was released in the Cars same 3 year? and Coco. And Coco, yeah. Oh, and yeah. The, so I just don't want I don't want the Brad the Pete Doctor one to get um, you know overshadowed. I think this is his last movie as a director. Um, so we you know we need Until to really pulls a Lassiter because Lassiter kept doing that though, right? Where he was like, "I'm stepping back," and then he was like, "No, I have to step in to fix Cars 2. No, no, the Cars oh. mythology needs me. Right. <laughs> well, he was supposed to direct Cars three at one point too, right? Or yeah, I he was supposed to direct Cars four. He was supposed to direct Toy Story four, and there was also a Cars four in development. Um, 
Did exactly. that go away when he left? They were like, thank God. No, they, it's, well, I don't know. I think it went, just went away when Cars 3 didn't make the money it was supposed to. But it, it, had, a really good, it had a really good director attached to it. Um, but I think that Pete Docter is, is one of those guys who's like inherently aware of the problems of sticking around too long. And you know, he's been working on this, this Mark Andrews book that's finally coming out or Mark Davis book that's finally coming out this year about his, his whole transition from animation to Imagineering. And he's very, I think he is very forward thinking in terms of who he wants to be making movies. And um, I think this will be reflected in the upcoming slate. And I think he also has no ego uh, about this kind of stuff. And that, you know, he just wants to do the, you know, do the best movie possible. And, once you guys see what is in store for uh, the Pete Doctor movie, I think you're going to be very, very excited about it. I mean, you're ex- you're excited about a new Pete Doctor movie, period. But this thing well, yeah. is really cool and different. Um, and I love that it's so coming it's, out of the year and nobody knows anything about it. That's so cool. Well, that's the... And going to Matt's point, like... I mean, I still remember when it was like uh, Leon Critch is doing an untitled movie about the Day of the Dead. And then we just had to wait like three years mm-hmm. until that movie came out. I like that it was like, oh, Pete Doctor has a movie coming out one year from today. Yeah. Do more of that. It's amazing. And there's so many, there's so much like untapped talent. Like I think Josh Cooley is a great example of like just someone who was just like quietly in the background of Pixar and he would help out here and he would co-write this and then he makes this amazing movie that's like totally different than any of the other Toy Story movies. And his sensibility is such a part of what makes that movie work. So I'm very, I'm very excited about seeing some of these people who I've kind of like watched, you know, in the background come to the forefront and, um, and make cool movies. But um, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's sort of a, a new kind of like goal. I, I I don't know how you guys felt about Incredibles too, but I loved that. And and going from from Coco to that to Toy Story four to these two original ones is pretty exciting. I enjoyed it. I'm I'm curious your thoughts though of because uh, this has been a, a recurring topic of Matt and I's. Um, oh yeah. Whenever a Pixar topic comes out, is the old guard like what? Because uh, it it was a few years ago. A big thing was like you know they were gone. Like what you know. Um, you had this old guard of these same filmmakers, Lassiter, Pete Docter, Andrew Stanton, Brad Bird, Lee Unkrich, and no one else was really breaking out. Do you think that those guys are gone? Like, is Stanton, do you think Stanton has kind of come back into a Pixar movie? Do you think Unkrich would ever come back? Brad I Bird? Think, I think Unkrich will not. I don't, and I don't think, uh, I don't know if Brad would. I think that, I think that under the right circumstances, if they brought back like Ray Gun or something, if Pixar got a hold of that, that, that Bird would come back because that was part of, Part of the 1906 deal and bringing in Warner Brothers was that Pixar was going to get Ray Gunn back from them. And if, 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 if any of the listeners don't know what this is or you guys, it was his like kind of like futuristic noir that he wrote with Matthew Robbins. That is really cool. And if you would lo- like to read it, I can send it along. But um, that was something he was supposed to get made after Iron Giant and just never happened. So... We'll see what happens with this, you know, this thing he's got set up at another studio, which I think I know the studio, but I don't know if I'm allowed to say. Um, His musical with Giacchino. Yes, yes. Um, But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't don't think we really need the old guards anymore. I think that, that, I mean, I think Stanton stepped in on Toy Story 4 and really helped get that script in good shape, but... um, I don't know. I would just love to see what the next. I want. I want you know Pixar the next generation to come up. Yeah. And I think that 
I think that Stanton is the perfect person to lead this transition time. And not Stanton, that doctor is the perfect person to lead this transition time because he just has no qualms. I mean, I've heard stories out of Imagineering that, you know, the only way that they could get anything built is that if it had something to do with one of John's movies, which is why we have Pixar Pier and we have Toy Story Land and we have all this stuff that is like totally unnecessary, but it served his... You know, it ser- served his Cars ego. Land. Yeah, there's fucking Cars, Cars Land. Land. Cars Land, exactly. So, you know, it's a, I've I've heard this story, and I and I know that this was in development at one point. They were going to do an Inside Out redo of the Imagination Pavilion at Epcot, and they took it to Pete and said, "Look at this," and he said, "Yeah, I, you know, I don't really. This doesn't really excite me. Like, go back and do something original, and that's what we'll move forward with. Because that's the other thing is that when when Doctor replaced Lasseter, he also took over the creative leadership of Imagineering and uh, Walt Disney Animation Studios at, at the same time. I mean, Jennifer Lee is now installed there as well, but he yeah. is sort of overseeing everything. So it'll be a really interesting time to see like what also comes out of this whole repositioning. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it. I know that Pete Docter is like the old guard to a T, but I am so psyched about his movie um he seems like a good dude and he makes amazing movies yeah i mean to me it seems like dr stanton and bird are kind of like the like genius trinity of of pixar and also to a degree leon grich not even just from the movies he directed but also like having an editorial hand in literally every movie did you see he has an additional editing credit or something in toy story 4 like no. he's been gone for eight months and he still has a credit on Toy Story Four. Yeah, I noticed he wasn't tweeting about that movie, which I thought was interesting. But yeah, it, they had kind of like pushed him into the leadership position on the like kind of Toy Story front after mm. um, Laster got pushed out. So I think he was just exhausted. Um, so but, just, just to sort of just to, before, so we don't run too long. One thing I do want to talk about before we go is is Andrew Stanton to sort of bring it all back around. Yeah. And he is sort of, you know, he's done some television. Do you guys think that he ever gets to do another live action film or is he sort of like he'll be it's only animated movies for Stanton because God forbid John Carter did not succeed as much as it should. I think he's working his way back to live action. That's what I think that these little these TV things are is sort of like him becoming more comfortable behind the camera, working with actors more, um, doing that sort of thing. Because if you'll know, he and Bird followed the same trajectory of the giant budgeted live action movie released by Disney, immediately followed by the sure bet animated sequel to a pre-existing thing that they yeah. had done. So but Stan was the only one who owed penance to Disney to do so. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that was the other funny thing was that like how, um, Bob Iger said, you know, we all share a, a part of the responsibility for John Carter. Don't pin it on him. Um, I thought that was very interesting. There wasn't really a, a response like that to to Tomorrowland. Um, yeah. Oh, I forgot about Tomorrowland. I was thinking Mission Impossible. No, Tomorrowland, yeah. Yeah. How could you forget about Tomorrowland? <laughs> Listen, we, got, we got another hour. Let's do another hour on Tomorrowland. That's another one. Of my let's favorite. do let's do a Tomorrowland podcast. We should do a Tomorrowland one, and we should also do one on Lone Ranger because I think they're uh, all fascinating. Yeah, uh, I can tell you about the Lone Ranger redo for Frontierland that they were ready to turn the key on. There's probably an animatronic Tonto in some warehouse somewhere, just waiting. To warehouse or Johnny Depp's home. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> 
he guards his wine cellar, probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> um, I think Stanton's going to come back in some way. I thought his Stranger Things episodes were pretty strong. Um, his Better Call Saul episode was pretty anonymous, which <laughs> is maybe good. Um, I haven't seen his Legion episode because I tapped out of that show. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I mean, from most accounts, he's... Uh, Ironically enough, uh, somewhat of a like a structural genius. It sounds like at Pixar, yeah. Um, uh, and like he knows story and he has ambition. I mean, as we said many times in this podcast, John Carter is an interesting failure. It's not a disaster. It doesn't show a complete lack of understanding of how to tell a story or how to make a movie or how to build a world. So he's got something there. Um, I would just like to see him do something on uh, a smaller budget. Maybe I think we got to get him on the podcast. I think that's the next move. We just have yeah. to get this. We have to forensically go through this with him. It'll be like therapy, and he'll be able to sort of talk yeah. about all the things that happened. Andrew Stanton, if like, you're listening, you have an open invitation to join yeah, our tag, podcast. Tag him, tag him on the when you share the the episode. I'm not that thirsty. I'll say it about <laughs> this, but I'm not going to be like, come on my podcast, two time Oscar winner the, Andrew Stanton. Listen, how do you think I got any of these people on my podcast? Just, just you're more brazen than I am. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Just be thirsty, as yeah. if you didn't already tap out after 30 minutes of us just shitting on the movie. Yeah, <laughs> I know, as if we have anyone listening. Listen, I love it. I hope somebody's listening. I think that this movie is having a little bit of a moment with the the Netflix stuff. So I I would just love to see it evaluated, appraised, and also deconstructed in some kind of thoughtful way. Now I feel like I'm talking myself into writing a book about this this movie, but that the, the you know, second book that. about it. There is already another John Carter book about him making it. Oh yes, it's like an ebook. Okay, well I'll I'll do that. Self published. I don't care. I'll I'll listen. I'll read it. I'm, All right, I'm excited. For it. Well, thank it's you. It's extremely guys. watchable. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, th- thank you all for listening. Uh, if you want, and uh, thank you so much, Drew, for joining us. We really appreciate it and all the insight you bring from uh, behind the scenes. Yes. I thought this was going to be a Lion King uh, podcast, too. I guess we got to <laughs> save that. That'll be, that'll be for the next time. Yeah. And Adam, I'm looking at you right <laughs> now. I, no. Listen, I don't like that movie. <laughs> <laughs> We'll get I, into that next week. I just single-handedly shut down Twitter, so yeah. I I will say you uh, once again. Please go check out Drew's Light the Fuse pod. Um, you will never hear a more uncomfortable moment than when Drew asks legendary editor Paul Hirsch about the Tom Cruise Mummy <laughs> movie. <laughs> Yeah. Which he kept in the podcast, so go listen to that. <laughs> yeah, I was like, ooh, okay. And we were at his house, so I was like, I'll see myself out. Um, yeah, that'll be my next podcast series, will be about The Mummy. But yeah, go listen to that, and you can read me on, on Movie Phone. And uh, Drew tailored like the suit uh, on Twitter. So thank you guys for having me. I can't wait to come back. Of course. Uh, and Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.